0: Visit RTI on the web at English.RTI.org.tw.
1: Hello and welcome to Radio Taiwan International. I am Natalie So. Up this hour on Taiwan Today, I talk with a prominent Japanese American artist who was recently in Taiwan, exhibiting at the Taipei One Hundred and One, Makoto Fujimaru, and he talks about the concept of culture care. And then we have for you a taste from the live performance scene here in Taipei on Live from Taipei. But first, join us for Here in Taiwan. <laughs> Welcome to Here in Taiwan. It's November 9th, Friday, and in the studio we have Shirley Lin. Hello. Andrew Ryan. Hi. And I am Natalie So. We'll be telling you what the very first 24-hour store was in Taiwan. Might be a surprise to you. And also, why 20% of Taiwanese like to travel alone. Also, the work of a plant hunter. And if you want to get an idea of what Facebook would have looked like 100 years ago, I'll we'll be telling you what a museum in Tainan is doing to show you that just what that's all about. I think Taiwan is kind of known for its 24-hour stores. I think we had one of the first 24-hour bookstores
2: mm-hmm. the in S-suite Asia.
1: Bookstore. Mm-hmm. And, um, but what was our very first 24-hour store? What do you think it was, Andrew?
2: 24-hour store. Um, and this is not a food shop or restaurant, Right.
1: We don't know. We're gonna. Uh, I mean,
3: no, it could is be. It, is it a could grocery store? Could be anything, including food no. shop or a restaurant. Of course, we always think about the convenience stores, right? Like 7-Eleven, But no, we're not talking about those.
2: <laughs> is it the fruit shop behind my house? Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> is it you twenty-four wish. hours? Yeah, it is. Oh, wow. What?
2: Amazing. But
3: I bet wow. it wasn't the very first in Taiwan.
2: Uh, let's see. First in Taiwan. Like, can you tell us how old oh, it was? It's a chain
3: store. Actually, is it a chain? It's a chain store now. Um. Well, the very first one. I'm not sure if the if it was uh, if it became a chain store. But we're talking about
2: 1949. 1949 wow. <gasps> yes. must be it's not you. a restaurant.
3: Well, it is. It's it is food a restaurant. related. Yes, yes. Okay. It's Food related. Is
2: it like one of those like um, uh, rice porridge congee places on Fushing South Road?
3: Close enough. But uh, we're talking about soy milk. You know the. <gasps> Ah. Yonghe Soy Milk Shop it's been, Wow, it's this been around for so long Soy
2: Milk King
3: Yeah, Soy Milk King In fact, uh, the very first one was called um, I think World Soy Milk King Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah Yeah, called 世界豆漿大王 uh,
2: That's yeah. very interesting
1: yeah, Those are delicious Well, for our listeners, what is available there? They have soy milk They, have soy they milk. also
3: have like what they call danbing, egg wraps. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. these uh, saobing, like clay oven rolls. What are actually? flatbreads.
2: Yeah, with sesame on top.
3: Uh, yeah. And then uh, Yo tiao, Sometimes. like uh, the fried dough sticks.
2: Mm, right? oil sticks, yummy. Yeah, oil
3: sticks. <laughs> <laughs> so these so.
2: are like all breakfast items, yeah? Yes. This is more of a traditional Taiwanese breakfast. Right.
3: Yeah, you could have them all day long.
2: Oh, yeah. Why yes, not? you could. And clearly you, you can. All
3: night long. <laughs> right. Well, there's a story behind, you know, uh, why we have this these famous uh, soy milk shops. Back in 1949, like I was saying, you know, when the, uh, the, the military officers come over from China, most of them... Are like you know noodle chefs or soy milk chefs uh, in this case. Oh. so now when soy they milk came, chef.
2: it takes a, a chef to make, so soy, to milk. make soy milk.
3: <laughs> it must be an art well, I guess, along s- with the uh, these uh, flatbreads, right? And soy
2: milk that. masters, masters, <laughs> soy milk
3: masters. Yes. Um, so when they came, um, pretty much you know uh, all of Taiwan and Taipei are saturated with uh, the settled um, residents of Taiwan. So. They basically, these uh, mainland Chinese, they could only go and settle in uh, Yonghe or Zhonghe, which were not as, you know, saturated then.
2: So those are like the outskirts of Taipei, like yeah. Taipei County used to be known as, now it's like New Taipei, new Taipei City, City, right? Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, so obviously, how would they make a living? They, they're they master chefs in, what is it, noodles. But, but in this case, we're talking about like soy milk and all these flatbreads. So that's how it all started. It became a trend, oh. and just more and more came up, and uh, and now there's more to the story. Oh, back in the old days, in the 60s and 70s, people would stay up to watch little league baseball games. Oh. Oh.
1: Right, And they right. needed something
3: to eat, right? They get hungry Yeah, you know, the games finish like in the middle of wee hours of the night And they get hungry
2: And so this was because like Taiwanese Little League Baseball the, These teams were some of the best in the world yes, yes. And the games would take place Aww. in the US
3: would, would stay Aww. up to watch so those games, cool. right? So it was like
2: in the middle of the night They weren't in yeah. a normal hour here in Taiwan You'd have to like stay up all hours of the night to see it That's yeah. great Is it? Fun
3: So that's how it all came about Wow. The popularity of these soy milk shops. Now, you know, this idea is because there was a book that just came out. Um, It's got a long title, but it's talking about all these 70 different little things that you would never know about Taiwan. And actually, this story only talked about the soy milk um, uh, so legacy, that. okay? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't talk about any others—the uh, seventy, uh, the, the the sixty-nine other things that uh, you might find interesting about this book. So go get the book, Andrew.
2: <laughs> I'm going to. Can I have that piece of paper? And yes. I might even do a whole story and on get for some so,
3: soy milk while we're at it. Right? I know. Right. I
2: might do a show on right. feast Means West for it. Yep. Very exciting. <laughs>
1: survey found that 20% of Taiwanese like to travel alone
3: yes this is according to Expedia uh, one of these uh, online platforms that does you know uh, travel and um, uh, they did a study on 1500 uh, Taiwanese travelers and found that 20% like to you know travel by themselves for one thing think they, they can enjoy a different kind of travel a different kind of journey um, and a vacation and the other is there's just so much freedom to traveling alone' In in other words, 20%, that means like every five people one likes to travel alone, like
1: or had no, experience. No friends, no yeah.
3: family. Yeah.
2: Wait, 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 wait. Can I, so it's not
3: independent traveler. It means like you're just no, you just traveling yeah, solo. you plan it ahead. Yeah, so you you low. plan to just travel by yourself.
2: So is this a person who only wants to travel alone, or does that include people who like often travel with family but they would be interested in traveling alone?
3: Uh, it doesn't go into the they details like to of travel that. Alone, right? Either they enjoy traveling alone Prefer or they it. experience traveling alone. Oh. You know, like mm-hmm. they tried traveling alone. I've done that. How yeah. how is it? Yeah. Okay,
2: I think it's great. I mean, it's it's really interesting though because I find that like if you arrive in a place, I always want to tell friends and family. Like right. so, even though I'm alone, like I'm still thinking about all the people that are not there to enjoy it with me, right? So I still mm-hmm. want to share it. Like if you see an amazing sunset, like you kind of want to tell somebody about it, right? Right but away.
1: When you, yeah, you go somewhere, you know people where you're going.
2: Well, yes and no. Like I, I mean. I'm talking about the kind where I don't know anybody uh-huh. where I'm traveling right. to. Right, I've right. done that a couple of times. And that's a, that's a different scenario. That's like if you really need some time by yourself mm. and if you really need to like be in charge of your own schedule and like just need... No distractions. No distract Well, or, or all di- distractions. Or,
3: yeah. <laughs> no wow. one running the show besides yeah. you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You've mentioned most of the factors of why these lone travelers, ah. you know, um, oh. you know uh, that they get out of these um, traveling by themselves. But um, the age group, the, um, the highest age group That like to travel alone Is between the age of 40 and 49 okay. That takes oh, up 31% That sounds yeah. familiar Yeah <laughs> <laughs> So yeah and
2: I may and, or may not be in that age group
3: <laughs> Right And then there uh, There are other factors People think that they can grow If uh-huh. they travel by themselves Another thing that they learn How to resolve problems by themselves
2: I definitely stopped growing by the time I <laughs> 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 kidding you
3: know oh, you mean like
2: like mentally you right? right right good food man right, right.
3: oh yeah of course they can enjoy a good meal not having to be hassled and rushed you know mm-hmm. uh, if you've got a group of people there and then um, and then there's so much convenience about online info you know anything you know you a lost about something you don't know about something you can always just go online and look up those info mention yourself right so there's a convenience of internet that's why it makes traveling by yourself much easier
2: i will say i i mean even though i like prefer to have you know a, a little bit of alone time on my you know vacations and i do or like we could have one or two people there i will refuse to go with a large group yeah. that is definitely something i put my foot down on uh-huh. like if you have more than three or four people then it's like Everybody wants to go in a different direction. Then somebody <laughs> needs to be like a cruise ship director, right? It's like, all right, guys, this is what we're going to do. You're going to vote. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and that can it's take so much time.
2: And I don't want to be that person. And yeah. I don't want anybody else to do it either. <laughs>
3: yeah, really. But, um, of course, you can actually save a bit of money if you're that kind of person, mm-hmm. you know, by traveling on um, more of the budget airlines and, um, and also choose to kind of, you know, uh, lodging that you want for yourself and not have to discuss with somebody else. And actually, well, p- for some, though, because they kind of like it uh, for the shopping part, though. <laughs> but then they can shop by themselves. and then Yeah, but this is going to carry
2: your life. stuff for you. <laughs>
3: um, mail it. <laughs> I don't
2: know. There is that.
3: Yeah. So, anyway, I think we should try traveling by ourselves. They, you know, you get a sure, very different kind of experience from that. Can yeah. try it sometime. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us briefly about The Plant Hunter. Yes, um, we're talking about Hong Xin Jie. And um, he's, I think, from Taitung. Um He's one of the, I'm sure there are other plant hunters. But when we're talking about plant hunter, it's someone who travels around Taiwan, climbing trees and going up mountains and going, you know, walking down to the sea, looking for plants that are on the brink of extinction. And Ooh. then they bring them back for cultivation.
2: So it's different from an animal hunter. <laughs>
3: right. <laughs> he doesn't right. bring
2: weapons with him, is what you're saying.
3: No. <laughs> so, well, I mean, maybe a knife or something, too. Well, I mean, he you know, doesn't yeah. kill the plants, though, <laughs> right? right? No, no, no. Yeah. You're right. I mean, I'm sure they have a you know a very sophisticated way of um, bringing those back l- alive.
2: Very careful, <laughs> live. Yes, yes. yes.
3: <laughs> and so, um, he, you know, he does have a very challenging job. He says that he thinks this is probably the most dangerous profession in Taiwan. And has often thought that he probably well, really he's met up with snakes and stuff right <laughs> yes he has been chased by hornets Ooh. and also fallen from trees oh. now i'm i'm not sure if he's been bitten by you know poisonous snakes but anyway you, it's you, all
2: you did a video on him right yes
3: yes and yes. if you have
2: the chance you should check it out i think it's a Definitely. great it's such a cool video and you can see him running from hornets too yes, right that's right
3: that's right it's like how did you get footage of that uh, they
2: plant the hornets there? And like, okay, I walk by someone, this.
3: <laughs> I guess someone wanted videotape, you know, videograph uh, his story, his life story. So that's why. And because of his job, we learn about like this particular uh, very white translucent plant that looks like, like a like a little bug. But we it's got a like, picture of that too on our website. Mm. Yeah, it's got tentacles coming off the top. Fascinating. Yeah, it's got an interesting name. It's called Thysmia taiwanensis. See? It's endemic to Taiwan. Taiwanensis.
4: Wow.
3: You know, I think it's really amazing. Well, he's he gets even around. Yeah, yeah. He's even like tracked five days to um, some really remote kind of little lake called Little Ghost Lake in Taitong. Oh. Um, but it doesn't say what kind of plant it was looking for. But I you know, I wonder if he's like being assigned to find these plants or he just goes and just look for them.
2: Sounds like his life's purpose, right? He's just rooting around for stuff. Maybe he hears like a little story. He gets like on a CB. He's like, check, check, check in. And we have, we found a small plant. Please come and get it over and out. And then he like (laughs) gets on a train and then a car and then a, and then he walks and then he like climbs and then he gets his plant.
1: Yeah. So he's been all over Taiwan. I'm sure. All over. Yeah, so, anyways, we have a great on... video of that. Yes, definitely watch it. Check it out on it. our website. Very exciting. And, uh, Andrew, tell us about the exciting Facebook type of uh, exhibit. Yes. Okay.
2: Have you ever thought about what uh, Facebook might have looked like 100 years ago? Well, the National Museum of Taiwan History has this great new exhibition. What they've done is they have published more than 2,000 Japanese colonial-era yearbook photographs from 20 different schools in what is now Tainan, Jiai City, and Yunling and Jiai Counties, and these are all available on their website. You can actually do a little search on a map to see where they um, were physically, but you can also look in different eras. Um, So, 100 years of photos. Um, And actually, it's a brand new museum, the National Museum of Taiwan History opened in 2011. You can actually go there and see the exhibit. It's called Time for School, Modern Education in Taiwan. It runs through April 14th next year. What's really interesting is they see how schools, many different schools use Uh, Take similar photos from similar angles, so you can learn a lot by looking at all these um, exhibitions. The the photos changes through time. They say a lot of them take pictures in front of the sacred trees on Ali Shan, or in front of Japanese colonial era Tori gates, like those gates called Tori.
4: Right. Yeah. My
2: Japanese not so good, but it's fascinating, Um, and you can really get a feeling for the era by looking through these photos.
1: Cool. So another exciting exhibit here in Taiwan. And uh, do stay tuned as we close up for here in Taiwan. Do stay tuned for Taiwan Today and live from Taipei. For Here in Taiwan, I am Natalie So. I'm Shirley Lin.
2: And I'm Andrew Ryan. We'll see you soon. Taiwan Today with Natalie So.
1: Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I am Natalie Sell. So. Today I have with me prominent Japanese-American artist Makoto Fujimura, who recently held three exhibits in Taiwan, one at the Taipei 101 and also at the Art True Galleries in Taipei and Tainan. Makoto is the founder of the International Arts Movement. He was also a U.S. presidential appointee to the U.S. National Council for the Arts. Makoto also authored a book called Culture Care, And he tells us about that concept.
5: So Culture Care came out uh, initially as I, I thought about how an artist can be right in the heart of the storm in culture in America and... After 9-11, I was invited to partake in this project in Washington, D.C., um, appointed by President Bush to be part of National Council on the Arts, which is the highest arts leadership position in, in the country, working with National Endowment Arts Chair, who was, at the time, Dana Joya, who who is a poet, and also he was a business exec- executive, and he waded into very divided Washington in the early 2000s, and began to speak as a poet into this uh, contentious reality um, of politics in D.C., and successfully Turn the tide into understanding that culture is something to be cared for. It is not something to fight over. Everybody wins when you care for culture, um, and we need a culture and civilization that values itself over winning. Uh, it's uh, you know her ideolo- ideological uh, positions, and Dana taught me. Uh, really, um, and I started to call what he was doing in Washington D.C. He would go into Senate sub appropriation meetings, and he would start quoting Shakespeare or Longfellow or you know, and and just disarm this whole notion that somebody has to be right and you know this uh, whether it be funding for the arts or the issues that uh, can get very contentious you know in 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 uh, america the, he would speak into that and senators and house members would just be completely surprised by the power of poetry in such a context i saw that and i began to call it a culture care and um, and I began to see artists as leaders in this effort to steward and care for. Cultural spaces and and soils, rather than be conscripted into front lines of culture wars, and it has to take a position on, on, on a political position or you know position on issues, which we're not really good at. Anyways, I I think artists are too nuanced to do that, but you know um, we're forced into that position, and you know Dana's leadership. Brought out the possibility that artists can be leaders in culture, any culture, without taking this extreme position. The, simply, it, it is like a gardener caring for the soil. If you care about the land, yes, you do defend the land, but you also care for it. You know, you you tend to the soil, and because you want things to grow, I see artists work as uh, farmer um, of culture. Uh, we we are the ones that's tilling the soil of culture and planting seeds and nurturing it by watering and giving it uh, nutrients. If we don't produce there's no reason to fight over a land because the land is a wasteland. But, you know, artist work is, is extremely important work in culture as a, as a leader. And to bring that into focus in, in, in America, you know, is, is what we were able to do successfully for close to six years. And I, I learned a lot. And so my book, Culture Care, came out of that time.
1: Oh, that's wonderful! That um, you know you've been making such a great contribution to the world of art, mm. um, based in the United States. And I know that you come to Taiwan every yes. year, and you yeah. have your exhibits yes. here. Tell us what you think of the you know the world of art here, and yeah. any words you have for people sure. regarding cultural care.
5: Well, I love Taiwan. I think it's a, it's a, a cultural hospitality, and 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 I think it's deeply integrated into this idea of cultural care. I think Japanese culture is the prime example of what cultural care can be seen in the world even though the Japanese don't realize this and i I keep going back to Japan to remind them that their culture has has this integration that very in uh, high refinement that very few cultures were able to get to and Taiwan kind of flows out of that you know in, in a sense because it the not just because of Japanese occupation, but because of the unique position that Taiwan as an island has in relationship to China and the West, and I th- I think the kind of this entrepreneurial spirit here is just just a right mix of focus for art to grow compared to Hong Kong, which is very much about finances and business, um, you know, bottom lines. Taiwan has a pocket of just genuine humanity to me that um, that to me as, as, as an outsider coming in is uh, really values. So I am really excited to be, you know, not only coming in every year, but to be part of creating something new, uh, you know from this particular location uh, that would be sent into rest of Asia. Uh, including Japan. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm grateful for support of Art True to be able to do that.
1: Someone has said that uh, you are a beautiful combination of both Eastern and Western culture. (laughs) So how would you describe how you take from both of these cultures in your art?
5: Right. So I'm actually a misfit, you know, from both (laughs) sides, you know, I don't fit anywhere. But but I I, I appreciate that because I I hope to be. I I hope to be a bridge. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think my art certainly does that taking 16th and 17th century Japanese aesthetic into 21st century and you know bringing out some of the possibilities uh, even fulfilling some of the possibilities of 20th century artists like Mark Rothko or Jackson Pollock or you know people who broke open this new possibility of what art can be and so I'm I'm grateful that I, I have the kind of upbringing that allows me to traverse, you know, to be borderless in that sense and east, west, north, south, <laughs> whatever that may be. Um, I'm, I'm grateful that I, I have the opportunity to do that.
1: That's wonderful. And, um, you once gave a speech called The Aroma of the New that was right. uh, named as one of the best commencement speeches ever. That's I'm right. sure it's very inspiring for those young people. Can you tell us what you inspired? Yeah, them that was with? my what was your message.
5: Yeah, uh, Bell Haven University a while back, but uh, they asked me to give a commencement speech, which I'd never given before. and... So I really spent time thinking about, you know, if I had five minutes to share something with young people who are graduating, what would that be? You know, that you only remember one thing, right? So I titled it Aroma the New, and uh, 3.11 had just happened uh, in Japan, and I, it was just oh. devastating experience to go to Japan. Prior to giving the speech, I was walking around in Ishinomaki with these just unthinkable views of boats on top of the elementary school and all these orphaned students in in the gymnasium just complete devastation of this old fishing town beautiful fishing town and i i just talked about that experience and you know talked about trauma and how certainly in 20th century and Early twenty first century, we, we are beset with so many challenges, and and yet what what the arts can bring is the aroma of the new. And I talk about you know my experience of going to see Thornton Wilder's uh, wonderful play Art Town in New York City, and um, the stage of that uh, was, was so unique as as the play continued to describe this little town in new england the the whole you started to smell this aroma of something new something, something new co- being happening. cooked yeah and oh. on and and you thought it was coming from a restaurant nearby you know but actually there was a kitchen oh. hidden behind the stage that opened up at, at the end of the play where the mother the memory of the mother by one of the characters emily is literally cooking that breakfast um uh, when she was thirteen, Aww. and that invoked for the people who were in the um you know auditorium in the playhouse you literally smelled bacon <laughs>
1: you oh, know there was a, a real aroma real aroma <laughs> that's
5: right and and i I say you know in in our journeys of trauma, what if there's a stage behind the stage mm. that can open up? that is more real than what we know to be real? Um, what if that is the reality that we all long to know and, and, and to create into? And, to, and um, so it was a kind of an artist's, <laughs> Talk uh, as a commencement speech. I, I don't know how it will be received, and yeah, NPR uh, later on picked it as one of the best uh, commencement speeches uh, ever given. So I, I, I was really blown away. But um, yeah, it, it, it was just uh, genuinely just in response to seeing devastation of 311 uh, firsthand, and then reflecting on that.
1: Oh, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, um, are there any words you'd like to uh, give to our listeners, whether here in Taiwan or around the world, about art, about culture? Before we end the interview, yeah,
5: totally. I mean, I I think Taiwan holds uh, this important key in the future of cultural expressions, and I intuited that coming into Taiwan many years ago, but I not only continue to believe that but there is a greater sense excitement that, that i hold to the future um, of how this kind of conversation can open up a new path in asia and and it's a, it's a conversation about integrity and integrating past history and all that is happening around us that that is conflicted. And we talk about culture wars, but we're talking about real wars too. And, you know, how artists can play a role in mediating that divide and uh, providing a perspective that I believe is critical for peace and valuing of, a human being's ability to not only be able to coexist but to create a new future so i I think that's what I see is uh, this you know negotiation that the younger generation that generation is uniquely poised for but um, one that you know our education system and our culture certainly uh, often uh, works against. That instinct to integrate, to use technology for the good of people, to communicate, uh, to commune, to create community, all those things I think younger generation has an instinct for, and we need to cultivate that.
1: Well, that's wonderful. And and you're one of the wonderful pioneers that they can look to. Thank you. Thank you so much, Makoto Fujimara, for all of your thoughts and insights. It's been wonderful talking with you.
5: Wonderful to be here. Thank you.
1: Again, that was Makoto Fujimura, a prominent Japanese-American artist who recently held exhibits in Taiwan at the Taipei 101 and Art True Galleries in Taipei and Tainan. Makoto is the founder of the International Arts Movement, and he was a presidential appointee to the U.S. National Council for the Arts. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So. (music)
4: Live from Taipei, I'm Charlie Storer. The September edition of the Taipei Story Slam was held, as always, at the Sappho Live Jazz Club here in Taipei on September the 27th. The theme of the evening was Strangers in the Night, and the storyteller, Brian, from the UK.
0: My story is about when Strangers in the Night start to tell a very familiar story about the way the world works. So I don't know if any of you have ever been to Australia before. I spent two years there. I took part in uh, the working holiday visa. And as part of that working holiday visa, you have to do three months of regional work. And regional work uh, is, well, constituted by mostly farm work. So that's mostly fruit picking of anything and everything. Uh, From mandarins, olives, grapes, you name it, I've picked it. Mangoes, if you think mangoes are delicious, wait until you've picked them. They make your skin burn and fall off, and it's no joke. These jobs are jobs that no one else wants to do, and this is why it's such a familiar story for uh, migrant workers to fulfill these roles, the jobs that no one else wants to do, kind of like English teaching. Um, So... (laughs) I'm in my second year, so that means I've already done three months of these grueling jobs. Um, I've worked for next to no pay. I've been ripped off. I've I've had a slew of horrendous things happen to me, and it really, really made me realize just how privileged my life had been for a very long time and now here I was out on my own and I was doing these jobs that I'd read about and I was someone who didn't really stick up for myself I've got to say I was someone who was put in these really desolate and remote areas and I was told to do work and my basic human rights were violated I still went to work because I was scared of the lack of an economic base to fulfil my travelling ambitions and I didn't take a stand and then I came back I did my three months, and I came back from my second year, and uh, I was a changed man. I was like the guy in the movie with the scar over one eye. Uh, I became a husky-spoken man whenever I was spoken to by the, uh, by the work hands. I was, I was of a different demeanor, and the first job that I got was a job from a guy called Suleiman, and Suleiman was a Turkish man. And so this is the beginning of The Strangers. Suleiman was a Turkish man and he offered me a job. He offered me a job picking strawberries. Picking strawberries you get $2 per kilogram of strawberries that you pick. You're made to sign a contract before you even get to the farm that states that a competent worker can earn a minimum wage. But when you get there, all the fruit's rotting. It's impossible to make a minimum wage, but there you are and you've signed away your whole life. So I go and meet Suleiman and Suleiman says, okay, we are going to be working on this farm. You have to turn up at this address uh, on the 31st of March and we'll begin work. So I commute about 3,000 kilometers to this to this job. And um, when I get there, it's a motel. Okay, this is not a farm. That's the first thing I think, this is not a farm. Okay, alarm bells start ringing. And then uh, to make things worse, more strangers in the night arrive. Here we are in this motel the sun's setting and a bus arrives. On that bus, there are a number of Kenyans, there are a number of people from Korea, there are a number of people from Canada, there are a number of people from France and across Europe. And all of these people get off and they're all in the same boat. They're all bright-eyed, they're all naive, they remind me of me just one year ago. And so I watched this unfolding and I thought, I've been in this situation before, I need to take a stand for all these people. So I don't know if you've seen the movie called Hand Luke, or anything similar to that, but I certainly became Call Hand Luke, and I stood up and I started to berate and lecture the people who had lured so many young, willing workers into a situation where they were going to be used and abused. So we have all of these strangers, and we're all trapped in a very remote community, and all of us are so poor that none of us have our own transportation, so we're left with no other option but to stay in this motel. And so you can imagine you've got girls who don't speak the same language as some random boys that they have no idea who they are, where they're from. They're just put in a room and they're made to bunk together and share a bathroom. And so we truly, truly are strangers in the night. When we're put together, it's very hard for us to trust one another. And when we're separated by language as well as a barrier, it's, it's extremely, extremely difficult for people to just open up and smile. And when we were in that situation, and when we were asked to work, instead of banding together, which is something that I really wanted us all to do, many people just gave in. They gave in and they went to work, and they worked for nothing. They worked for nothing, and they did it willingly because of their fear of power and their inability to organize because of the fact that they didn't speak the same language and they had no way to communicate. On the first day of work, I end up going to work as well on the first day. On the first day of work, it's a bunch of rednecks who take us out to this field. And um, we all work so hard. We work so hard for very, very little pay. And we come home and we're told that we're going to be paid hourly. And of course, all of a sudden, It's not hourly pay anymore. It's now $2 an hour. And we're all so shocked and we're all so mortified that this is the case that I instantly say, you know what, I quit. I'm not going to take any of the money here. I'm going to move on to the next job. I was told immediately that I would have to leave the motel if I was going to find another job. So I said, okay, I'm going to leave the motel. I'm going to stand up for myself. I'm going to leave the motel. I called Suleiman and I said, I'm leaving, you can let other people move in. And Suleiman said, I've got another job for you, it's Ali paid. I was like, okay, this is how the world works. All right, I get it. This is how you get Ali paid, work. you just stand up for yourself, okay? So I say, uh, so what do I have to do for this job? And he goes, okay, find Moses. Okay, so he's like, okay, Moses is with the Kenyan crew. Go down, and find Moses. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, okay, and just draw this map. I'm like, okay. So he goes, okay, right, so you wanna go through the town, you wanna go through the woods, you're gonna see a red Holden on the left-hand side, then you're gonna see a dirt track. Go down that dirt track and ask for Agnes. I'm like, all right, cool. So I'm just walking around this motel with this random piece of paper, just looking around going, Moses, 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 Moses." no, okay, no, Moses is not in here, knocking on doors, Moses is in here, no? All right, okay. Then I look down through the car park, and there's a guy working on a car. I don't know whose car it is. Whose car it is? And I go over and I'm like, "You Moses?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Moses. What's going on?" I'm like, um, "I think we've got a new job from Solomon. We just need to go and find, go and find Agnes." He's like, "Oh, okay. Well, jump in. I jump in the car and we'll start there with Moses, asking him about." Uh, general stuff about Kenya and like uh, his, how his course is going in Australia he's studying business management and uh, I'm given him these random directions and we're just getting further and further out into the bush and we get we get, uh, we get onto this road and you just see nothing for miles and miles and miles and then there's one red car right where Solomon said it would be I'm like okay Moses, take a left here he takes a left, we go down there I'm thinking to myself, Agnes Agnes Always makes me think of maybe a Scottish woman, red hair, feisty. So we pull up, I get out straight away, a mistakable smell of shrimp sauce. I'm like, okay, this probably isn't gonna be what I think it's gonna be. And uh, Agnes is from Malaysia, and she walks out and uh, she stands there with her arms folded, and she's an absolutely super powerful woman. You can just tell by the way that she stands and announces herself. And she's like, uh, do you speak any Chinese? And I was like, a little bit. She's like, okay, I'm going to put you in the house with all the, with all the like, Eastern Asian people. And I was like, oh, God. Okay, I should have said that. I don't speak any Chinese at all. They put me in the house. There was something really tragic there as well because the next job ended up to be exactly the same as the first one. And uh, the people who will always bear the brunt The brunt of of the injustice in the world are those people who unfortunately don't organise, don't stand up for themselves and uh, never really get that change made so I guess in essence we were so many strangers in the night and so many people there did stand up for themselves and I learned so much but it was a very familiar story in that if you don't organise and don't stand up for yourself uh, we all end up living in a worse off world thank you for listening
2: A look at Taiwan's movers and shakers.
6: President Tsai Ing-wen has asked Morris Zhang, the retired founder of chipmaker TSMC, to represent her at this year's Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC, summit meeting in Papua New Guinea next week. The summit will be held from November 12 to 18. Tsai said, Zhang is a suitable choice, as the theme of this year's AIPAC is Harnessing Inclusive Opportunities, Embracing the Digital Future. She also said, Zhang has made tremendous contributions to Taiwan's tech industry and is a well-respected figure internationally. Back in 2006, Zhang attended that year's APAC Summit in Vietnam, representing then-president Chen Shui-bian. Zhang said, he will exchange views with the APAC member countries on how small economies cope with challenges amid the rise in nationalism in superpowers. He said Taiwan, a vital part of the supply chain innovation of the global digital economy, will play a crucial role in the world's digital future and face challenges too. Zhang founded TSMC, or Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, in 1987. The company has since grown to the largest independent semiconductor foundry in the world. John, aged 87, retired in June after 31 years at the helm. Under his leadership, TSMC's wafer manufacturing services changed the structure of the supply chain of the world's semiconductor industry. They also promoted the integrated circuit or IT industry. Without TSMC, John once said, smartphones wouldn't have hit the market as as they did. He said that while TSMC has been quite successful, the company faces several challenges at home and abroad. Amid the rise in populism and protectionism in the United States, Japan and China, he said TSMC must strive to seek a level playing field. Zhang also said the company must cope with a lack of water, electricity, land and talent in Taiwan. Zhang was born in eastern China's Zhejiang province in 1931. In 1948, with the civil war raging in China, Zhang moved to Hong Kong. The following year, he went to the United States to attend Harvard University. He transferred to MIT, where he received a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering in 1952 and a master's degree in 1953.
1: To Our programs here today at Radio Taiwan International. I'm Natalie So, back here with Shirley Lynn and Andrew Ryan. And we're going to leave you with one more thing. Well, we have a story of three amazing seniors who have reinvented their lives after retirement. So this is inspiring for all of us who are going to be senior one day.
2: Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And you know what they're saying is that a lot of people, um, their life's work, once you retire from that, you end up retiring right into your own home. And that is something that they're hoping to see less of in the future. Um, This is actually, uh, they had a a series of classes called, I'm going to be uh, the master of of my later years and it's about encouraging seniors to kind of to take their future into their own hands and reinvent themselves because it's a great opportunity especially since people you know are living longer uh, if you retire at the age of 60 or 65 the average aging you know life expectancy here in Taiwan is like 70s and 80s you have a good 15-20 years to you know do something new with your life so I want to tell you about three people uh, one is 92 year old Huang Lai Yue and she is a world record holder she's the number well nine she's ninth place winner in the international cup stacking competition oh have you seen these yes oh my goodness what kind of cups are they they're like plastic cups yeah and they have um i don't know how many of them they have they have i think like 10 of them or something like that but you you basically you stack them up in different orders and then you unstack them and restack them in the shortest
3: time that you can
2: Yeah (laughs) It's amazing You can go on the internet And search for videos about it It's absolutely incredible But to imagine that she has the dexterity At the age of 92 years of age so cool To be able to do that It's amazing Then there's 83-year-old Cai Rongkun uh, who was in the movie, the the documentary called uh, Grand Riders. Basically, Tsai uh, Quinn. he, uh, before he got involved in this group of uh, motorcycle riders who actually went all the way around Taiwan, he was actually really depressed and he was very sad and he had a lot of different problems. For example, um, he didn't eat enough um, and he just wasn't really, in, you know, not in a very happy place in his life. And he said that uh, after his wife passed away, he almost followed suit. But then he got involved in this um, group called the Elderly Grand Riders. And on the very first day when they set off to travel around Taiwan on motorcycles, he solved one of his problems, which was he was never hungry. And he managed to golf down a whole biandang in one sitting. And actually now, every day uh, at 6.30 in the morning, he gets up and he rides his motorcycle from Sanchong, which is in uh, New Taipei City, all the way up to Guandu, which is up near the coast. Uh, you know, he really, get, you know, has his own schedule. He has his own um, kind of things that he does in his life, and he's also gotten uh, hold on his finances. Um, wow. So that's the second person. The third person is uh, an individual by the name of Li Tsun, who actually was in a performance at the uh, Taipei Arena recently, uh, singing and dancing. Wow, uh, that's the, a
1: big place. It is a big
2: place. like a place. P-
1: major... Tens thousands, of thousands yeah, of people.
2: Ten, right. Whenever people would get up on stage to perform, he would be what he called a paiso duijang, so he'd be in charge of the clapping. Um, <laughs> but then, actually, he took some classes at a local community center, um, some uh, Broadway musical classes, and he was able to, after eight uh, months of practice, get up on stage and perform. So, that, I mean, I think it's... Really incredible that all of these people have um, come into new opportunities in their life uh, and this is actually uh, following some statistics from the new Taipei City government which found that 64% of people who are elderly hope that their families will discuss with them what's going to happen to them in their elderly years and after they pass away um, and of course if you know about Taiwan mm, culture and Chinese culture this is very unusual because um, people can, don't
4: don't talk talk about about it
2: and they they, you know and young people I think are afraid to talk to their elders about it the fact that 64% of the elders want the young people to proactively
0: ask their parents
2: about it is a real difference um, from the way things were in the past
1: that's Mm -hmm. wonderful well it shows that we're embracing a life in every stage of life as it Mm -hmm. is right and these seniors are leading the way well that's about all we have for today I am Natalie So. Thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Taiwan International. We hope that you join us again sometime soon. See you next time.